Hi, my name is Michael Bosey. Welcome to my podcast, Marketing Without the Marketing. Happy to have you here as always. Today's topic that I'd like to talk about is about keeping a customer, doing it the right way, not trying to force dependency of a customer or a client or whatever, right? If the, if the customer wants to go, they should be able to go. Now, last week we talked about contracts uh, and trying to make them so that they're not just a trap, trying to be a little bit more lenient about it. And I left a link in the show notes for you so you can go back and review that if you like. But I feel like this is something where, you know, as a business, it takes a long time to earn the trust of someone until they become a customer. And of course, the, the impulse is to want to keep them right? If things are going great, you got customers who are recurring customers, long-term customers, loyal customers. Awesome. That's great. So you want to hang on to them. You got numbers to hit. You start to depend on the revenue. All this stuff is really good for your business, but you want to think of this instead of trying to, uh, you know, to trap them or, or, or hold them against their will is to think of it instead as earning the right to serve them over and over again so that they'll want to stay. Because the opposite, right, forcing the issue is is off-putting, right? You want your customers to stick with you. But if you kind of make it feel like they can't leave if they don't want to, I mean, that can be something that can erode trust. Now, companies do this all the time, right? They lock you in uh, via either a contract or the fine print, right? So for instance, they might have made you sign off on something in the EULA or end user license agreement or via user interface. Like for instance, when something is designed to sort of put you in a loop or it's not easy to get out of or an email, right? Similar, like where um, you get put on an email list, someone spams you and there's no unsubscribe button, no way to opt out of it right? So to put a filter in Gmail or whatever. Or it can happen uh, via bureaucracy, right? Where there's no way out of something. Or they make it incredibly difficult. And the story I like to tell is about Uber. Uh, Before the whole delete Uber thing uh, this year, uh, I deleted the app in 2014. I saw some things I didn't like from Travis Kalanick, said, I'm out. But here's the thing, uh, deleting the app didn't delete your account, So I actually had to email customer service, go back and forth and say, no, no, I want you to delete my account, my credit card information. I don't want to be, I don't have anything to do with this company. Deleting the app didn't do that. They kept your data. And as it turns out, we find out later that they were actually still using the data even after you had opted out, even after you were deleting the app. And they made it incredibly difficult to do that. You shouldn't do this. Now, Uber has a lot of other problems as a company, but this is one thing that, think about that, that does not instill trust in the company, that they're going to hang on to your data, your contact information, your credit card number, all the stuff that's associated with you, your account, your credit report, and they they hold on to that, even though you think that you've deleted the app. Not real good, right? Or, you know, the other thing you'll see is during, you know, think of like the terms of service that you might get for like, for instance, like the phone companies, another awful industry <laughs> where they they make you uh, sign a two-year contract where so you're locked in for your iPhone through AT&T or Verizon or whatever, or, uh, you know, those uh, the two-year commitments for a cable or internet package, like these things where they say, you can't leave if, if you want to, or we're going to charge you. Now, I get that, that that's good for the business, right? So if you're Comcast, getting someone to sign on for a two-year commitment, 
uh, or if you're Verizon, getting someone to sign a contract to keep you there and you say, oh, well, it's worth it now for us to do the customer service, to do the maintenance, whatever. Okay, that's fine, but that's not really that good for the customer, right? It holds you there against your will. And what ends up happening is even though you're going to, you know, as a company, hit your numbers and all that or whatever, what you've done is eroded trust. But here's the other thing. Who cares about these big companies? I like to focus on you, the small business owner. What does that mean for small businesses? If you're trying to lock me in, if you won't let me go when I want to, what does that say to me? It says that you don't believe in your product. Right? You're not going to be able to earn the right to keep serving me. You don't believe in it enough. If it was that good, I would stay as a customer because I want to, not because you're forcing me to. You don't want to be you know, taking hostages in your business. Show some confidence. right? And then go out there and earn their business every day, even if they're already customers. That's a key thing. You want to be earning the right to serve them. Now, in my business... Here's the way that I treat my clients. First of all, I'm teaching them these methods of content marketing or content strategy, how to manage all of their content and then use it in an efficient manner to attract an audience, nurture them into customers, right? Okay, so I think of it as training or teaching or whatever. Now, my client's goal is never to be a content marketer, right? They want to run their own business. They never want to be as like a writer like I am or research keywords in the way that I can or whatever, right? They just want to have enough knowledge to be able to run their business and get more out of it using these techniques, right? So that that's my specialty, not theirs, right? Their goal is just to get good enough at it so that it impacts their business and they hire me to train them on the nuances, Now, I do have longer-term contracts where I am the writer or the editor or the advisor. But here's the key thing. It's never my goal from the outset to enforce dependency on me. In other words, my goal is always train you on the things that you need to do to be able to affect your business and then walk away. Again, it's not to say that I don't want the longer-term contracts, in a way that's better for me, right? But the idea here is teach them how to fish, right? So that they can go do this on their own. I don't want to have them feel like from the start, it's a huge long-term commitment with this guy who's now going to be my writer for years and years and years. I'm going to have to pay him monthly for years and years and years. I mean, I would probably never get someone sign on to a contract. If that were the case, that'd be incredibly hard for me to close a deal, right? But also, it's the right thing to do. My goal is to come in, train someone, get them up to speed, and then leave and let them do it on their own, right? Because look, this stuff takes time. Content marketing doesn't happen in three months and you've got a massive impact. Sometimes not in six months, sometimes not in 12 months. So I can't be the guy who's hanging around billing you all the time, right? Like I want to teach you and let you go on your own. Now, this concept, I said that I've, you know, throughout this series that I've learned from mentors and mistakes. This one first came to me from a guy who I consider a mentor, this guy, Jeff Shellstead, who ran one of the startups that I joined uh, early on. Uh, it was called Flat World Knowledge, uh, publishing business trying to sort of rewrite the rules of an industry that's really busted. And Jeff had a brand new concept, and I decided to join him early on. 
Uh, it was one of the best experiences of my professional career. I just learned so much from not just the process, but from Jeff in particular, really, re really good business person who does it for the right reasons and um, just really appreciate all I learned from him. But here's the thing. Think about this. Jeff was starting a new publishing business and to attract authors, which was my job there, they were going to be taking a risk with a brand new company that no one had ever heard of. So think about that. That's a tall order to go and say, here, instead of signing with one of the big names, come and sign with us who you've never heard of. And one of the avenues to sort of mitigate the risk or not make it feel like it was such a, a risky venture was that Jeff completely overhauled the traditional publishing contract. And a lot of it was in favor of the author's. Right. It was sort of a, an olive branch or a way to just say, listen, we're different. And one of the biggest things in this contract uh, that was completely unheard of in the industry is that Jeff put in a minimum sales threshold that we would have to meet. That if we didn't, it would hand over to authors the power to opt out of the contract. Now, think about this in a traditional publishing contract. The whole thing hinges on this uh, agreement between the author and the publisher. The author is saying, here are the rights to a set of content. You, the publisher, go use, exploit those rights, and then we'll both benefit. Right? That's at the heart of the agreement. And here's the thing. You know, if that doesn't work out for the author, if the publisher does not market the work, does not sell it, if the book's a dud, the publisher still owns the rights. And too bad for the author. And I feel like that's, you know, that's something that, that Jeff sought to change. So in other words, with this minimum sales threshold, if it's not working out, if we're not selling enough of your work, then guess what? You get to say as an author, I'll take my rights back and I'll go do something else with them. And unfortunately, that's not how a lot of publishers think about it, right? They will think, listen, I don't want to give up the rights. I'll do that as a very last resort and a little behind the scenes from when I was at a big company. I mean, my bosses were smart enough not to put this in writing, but often they would say, we're not giving the rights back. And again, to be fair, that is the publisher's right. The author signed the contract that said, here, I assign all the rights to you. But for the publisher, you know, if the book's not selling or it's going out of print or it's not being marketed anymore, I mean... I'd ask the publisher, what are you doing with the rights that you wanted to have? And if you're not going to do anything with them, give them back. Sometimes it was just delay tactics, right? So the author asked for the rights back. You delay, 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 you know, just delay some more so that the interest in the product wanes. Or you wait until the next selling season so that they miss this selling season. And seriously, this stuff happens in the publishing realm, which is why a lot of authors don't trust publishers. And this is the same reason that people don't trust marketers, right? So many people who are in marketing are behaving badly. And it looks bad for all of us. Like think of just opting in for a mailing list. So many people abuse this that now we hesitate to sign up for things, right? Am I going to give you my email address? I don't know. Because in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, they're going to abuse the privilege. They're going to spam me. They're going to sell my email address. Like, I don't trust them. And that sucks, right? Because, you know, they haven't even gotten a chance to prove it to me yet. 
but I'm sort of approaching this with a little mistrust. And when I'm on the other side and I'm trying to get people to sign up for my list, you know, I think that I provide a lot of value in my podcast, my blog, all the writing that I do to try to help people. And I know that I'm going to do the right thing. But you don't believe me because other people have ruined it for me and everyone else. All right, back to the startup for a second. Uh, like I said, our contracts were different, more generous, in the author's favor, in a variety of, uh, of just unheard of ways in the industry. This said something to these authors. We are on your side and you're on our side. We're in this together. We still understand that it's a publishing relationship, but we're in this together. And these concessions in the way that you, you know, try to make it feel more fair, this instills a little bit more trust, even when the industry on the whole has done its best to destroy trust. All right, one more story, just as sort of a cautionary tale um, about lock-in and things that you should try to avoid. Now, I had this client who was working with a vendor, a web designer. And this vendor, when building the website for the client, he set everything up on his backend servers. So in other words, everything lived on the vendor servers. And the client, who's, also, who's my client now, uh, didn't even have access to her uh, WordPress site as an admin. Just think of how scary this is. This client of mine didn't own her own web property, core to her business, and it was completely under the vendor's control. Okay, this goes on for a while, everything's fine, but then at some point, the vendor disappears. She's trying to get in touch with them, whatever, and then I enter the scene, and we want to start blogging, making some changes to the site, creating some landing pages or whatever. And we can't do any of it because she doesn't even have access to the WordPress site as an admin. So we can't make any substantive changes. And she's getting no response from the vendor. Now, things started to get ugly between my client and her vendor. And the vendor ended up kind of holding the site hostage for what reason? I don't know. It wasn't a payment issue, or at least from my client's point of view. And, you know, I only have a small view into this, so who knows? But it was just the vendor preventing my client from working with someone else. So in other words, the vendor thought, uh, if I keep control of my client, then someone else like this guy, Michael, can't come in and, and do whatever, right? This, this is incredibly dangerous for your business, right? Because if you don't have control over it and you've handed over control to someone else, what happens when the, the relationship sours? You're completely at this person's mercy. Now, long story short, the way that we cured this is we just went ahead and set up a completely new site on a new server, rebuilt everything from scratch, moved the name servers over, created new email accounts, the whole thing. We just did it by force. But wow, that was a ton of work to sort of squirm out of this toxic situation. And the lesson here, obviously, is to own the assets of your business. Don't let anyone have the keys it's your business. It's your property. And this principle, I live by this every day with my clients. So for instance, when I'm setting up accounts for clients, I do it under their name so that they have control of it when we're done working together. If I'm not forcing dependency and I say, I'm going to be with you for three months, six months, 12 months, whatever, and then I'm gone, I can't own any of the properties on that. I can't have anything live with me. It has to all be under the ownership of the client. Really, really important. And the problem is, unfortunately, I see this a lot. I mean, working with small businesses, 
Their web properties are often a complete mess when I show up. I often have to untangle things uh, to help people get their web assets in order from the website to social media to their email marketing or whatever, just making sure that they actually have full control of everything. This should be in no one's hands but yours. All right, so this is probably a good place to stop because it's such a core tenant of running your own business, uh, something that's easy to forget while you're rush, rush, rushing. I get it. Trying to get stuff built, trying to get stuff out there. Like, I understand that. I'm a small business owner too, but you want to do it right. All right, so hey, look, that's the last episode in this series. Um, I might do others on counterintuitive lessons as they come up. But I left a link in the show notes so that you can listen to this entire series. It's 16 parts. Uh, You know, starts with the new business mindset. That was uh, five or six episodes. Then there was the new marketing and sales. That was another five episodes. And the new customer relationship, another five episodes. And this wraps it up. Uh, Hope that you've gotten something out of it. Maybe it's, you know, giving you something that you can relate to something that you might want to make a change in your own business. Maybe it's helped you think differently or just see another point of view on this. Um, I find that running my own small business is a learning process uh, from day one to now. And I'm sure in the future, I'll be just learning stuff every day. It's the thing I love about it. And it's probably what you love about it too. So, all right, again, thank you. I always appreciate your attention and we'll see you on the next episode.